Hey guys, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we're going to rebroadcast episode number 21, where we're talking everything internet. This is a big one. We'll dive into what it is, how it works, all the ways it's been used, good and bad. Let's kick into it. Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska famously described it as a series of tubes, which isn't entirely wrong, but that's not even close to being right. The internet is an interconnected network, internet of computers. Servers or hosts store the websites and they provide data to the clients, which is you guys. In 1969, there were four host computers and only a few nodes, which we'll explain what those are in a second. Now, today, millions of computers host websites all over the world with nodes spread across our planet and even in space. They have access to the internet on the International Space Station. It's so cool. One third of the world's seven billion people use the internet. Many of them use it every single day. The hosts, which are the computers that serve the websites, are controlled by individuals, by companies, by governments, and that's why no single entity really controls the entire internet. Nobody owns the internet, which makes it very difficult to regulate and control as a whole. But how does that work? So let's walk through some data from the computer all the way to the server and back again. To connect from your computer requires a lot of steps. And the first is a modem, even though it's not the AOL doo-doo-doo-doo kind of modem. This is any computer, even today, has a modem. It's just connected to your Wi-Fi card now. Your modem is your first node, and it has its own IP address or internet protocol address, and it's connected via your cable or DSL lines to connect to another modem at your internet service provider. So when you connect, you're connecting to them. The ISP has local connection points, which are kind of like highway on-ramps, and they are usually windowless, climate-controlled buildings called a point of presence or a POP. They're all over buildings all over the world, and sometimes you'll see them while walking around. If you start noticing them, you will start to see them everywhere. They usually say an ISP's name on the front, like Verizon or AT&T, and they just have no windows and are these huge buildings. It's really cool. The ISP modems are then networked together with fiber optic cable to a network access point in a larger city. It's a NAP in a larger city for your region. So that would be another node. Then in major cities... The biggest ISPs like Comcast and Time Warner and AT&T and Verizon come together, connecting their NAPs, their network access points, making the network even bigger. And finally, major cities are then connected using giant bundles of fiber optic cable in more giant windowless buildings all over the place, allowing petabytes of data to stream through. Then you get the internet backbone, which is awesome. In 1987, the National Science Foundation created the very first high-speed internet backbone, which allows 170 different networks to connect. That was in 1987. Today, high-capacity backbones connect to networks across the globe. These trunk cables are literally like they sailed ships with big spools of cable, and they just dropped it off the back of the ship, and it lays on the ocean floor off the coasts of countries, and that's where the internet goes. So when you dial on your computer, say you live in Africa somewhere, if you want to go to our website, you will end up taking a packet of data, sending it to your ISP, sending it over the backbone all the way here, and then back to your computer again. So how that works is, say you type in seeker.com into your browser. That text is translated into a packet of data. It's just called a packet. And it could be instructions, a request, it could be authorization codes, encrypted messages... 
Then the packets are sent to your internet service provider, like AT&T or something, and they are routed through the network to get from your computer to the ISP through the cables around your neighborhood. They want to go as fast as possible. They can also go through cell towers, but eventually they'll get to cables. Think of the packets as a group of cars on a highway. Sometimes it's faster to go in a line, and sometimes it's faster to take different routes, like I don't know, you could also think of it as people on water slides, right? (laughs) But sometimes there's that one spot where all the water slides start and they always end in the same pool, but they'll take different paths to get there. That's called packet switching. And it was invented in 1965 as a way to combat potential attacks on the computer system by the Soviets. They wanted to make sure that the data would get where it's going and it can use a variety of different paths to get there. If my computer uses hundreds of packets to upload a video to testtube.com, for example, then each packet's path is going to be assessed as they show up at the ISP, and they're going to take the fastest route possible to get where they're going. The ISP takes that information and goes to a domain name server, connecting through another series of tubes, and to find out what seeker.com translates to in terms of an IP address, that four-perioded number that you see sometimes. Google is huge, so they have lots of IP addresses, many hundreds of IP addresses. The domain name server, or DNS, will tell you what Google.com's IP address is in your area, because it changes depending on where you are in the world. Google owns IP address, for example, 64.233.160.0, and a range all the way up to 644.233.191.255. That's a lot of IP addresses, and they own all of them. And depending on where you are, you will get one of those maybe. They also own a bunch of other ranges. And Facebook, Google, Amazon, they also they all do this. It's standard procedure to get a lot of different IP addresses so that people can access their network from outside of it very smoothly. Once your computer knows the IP you're looking for, data goes through those pops, through the NAPs, right here in our offices in San Francisco, and then we take over giving you the data directly to your computer that you want. Which is interesting, right? Because there's this guy, Al Gore, and you may have heard that He thought he invented all this stuff, that he created the internet. But that's not true. He didn't invent the internet, and he doesn't think he invented the internet either. He misspoke during an interview while seeking nomination for president in 2000. In a March 1999 interview on CNN with Wolf Blitzer, Al Gore was asked to describe what distinguishes him from his Democratic challenger, New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. And his quote was, I've traveled to every part of this country during the last six years. During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. I took the initiative in moving forward a whole range of initiatives that have proven to be important to our country's economic growth and environmental protection, improvements in our educational system. That was pretty clumsy wording, and it ended up giving all sorts of ammunition, all sorts of issues to his political enemies. Basically what he meant, though, was that the legislation he helped create or push through in Congress during his tenure broadened the scope of the Internet in the United States, and that obviously worked. So while he didn't create the Internet, thanks, Al Gore, he did a good job so far. It's been going okay. The Internet was actually created by numerous people. There's no single inventor. It became a Cold War weapon. It was suggested uh, if the Soviets attacked the United States, the telephones could go down and all of these different sections of government would be unable to communicate. So they started a network of computers which could work independently using packet switching to get data from one place to another. 
Eventually, it started also as a university tool for professors and researchers, and they would be sharing their data. And it had four computers, as I mentioned earlier originally, and things started getting really messy. So in the 1970s, a guy invented TCP and then IP. TCP is Transmission Control Protocol, which is like a handshake between two computers. It says, hey, I'm going to talk to you now. This is my address. And the other computer says, cool, I'm going to talk to you now. Here's my address. And they can exchange information. And then there's IP, which is Internet Protocol. Today you'll see this in your computer as the TCP IP section. Researchers all over the world used TCP IP connections to connect to each other's computers and share research and data and all sorts of great stuff into the 1980s until in 1991... The network got large enough that Tim Berners-Lee announced the World Wide Web, where computers from all over the world could network with other computers from anywhere to anywhere. Super cool. And then in 1992, Mosaic was invented by college students at the University of Illinois. Mosaic was a web browser. It was a way to translate all of this information from the internet into something that we could better comprehend. That then became Netscape, which if you're as old as I am, you remember. And Netscape, in 1998, launched a project called Mozilla, which started Firefox, which still exists today. You might even be using it to watch or listen to this show. Eventually, there were AOL disks in every mailbox. The internet was spreading everywhere that it could reach, and now even onto our phones. But how deep does this rabbit hole go? How big is the internet? It's a very difficult question to ask, actually. It's kind of impossible to know. But you can look at the biggest indexer of the internet, Google, right? Google. Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, world's largest index of the internet. Remember, they don't create the internet. They don't make the internet. They just tell you what's out there. They're like the table of contents for the internet. And they estimated the size of the internet as roughly 5 million terabytes of data. It's a lot. It's over 5 billion gigabytes It's a lot of data, 5 trillion megabytes. Are you getting this? It's a lot. Schmidt further noted that in his seven years of operations, Google has indexed roughly 200 terabytes of the internet, or about 0.004% of the total size of the internet. That's all that's on Google, 0.004%. When you go to Google, you are searching the 0.004% of the internet that Google has indexed. Isn't that crazy? It is. The internet's big. Russell Seats took estimates for the size and traffic of the entire internet and paired that to the weight of the electrons needed to move a byte of information around. This is another way to measure the size of the internet, right? A byte is a tiny piece of information. A megabyte is one million bytes. So although minuscule, individually, trillions and trillions of bytes can add up, when you take them as a group. So if you look at it this way, the internet, according to Russell Seats, weighs two ounces. (laughs) That's great. I love that. I could drink the entire internet. (laughs) It's crazy. The deep web is part of the internet as well. And this is part of the reason Google hasn't indexed more than it has. Uh, The deep web is the unindexed internet. It's basically... Parts of the internet that tell search engines like Yahoo and Google and Bing and all of the other ones to ignore these pages. So think universities and libraries with login level access, things that are secured websites, they can't see that. That's the deep web. Or your email, those are technically websites. If you use Gmail, that's a website on Google's server that you are accessing. 
but that's in the deep web. So that's not included in their index. There are also other websites that are just behind walls, like Facebook is pretty much most of that information is publicly available, but they tell Google not to index all of it and only index the profile pages and then get your way into the other parts. Google, Bing, and stuff, they only capture about 1% of all of the internet's pages. So just imagine how much you're not seeing that is out there. And it is available. If you had the URL, there are ways to access it. And that is how the dark web works. You've probably heard them both. The deep web, not scary. Just stuff that's unindexed. The dark web, that's part of the deep web. And it is kind of scary. This is the nocturnality of the web. It's a network that lays over the public internet, but requires specific software and configurations or authorization to access it. The most popular browser that you would need to access the deep web is Tor, which uses a virtual tunneling system that acts like a multi-layered virtual private network. You're basically creating a private and encrypted connection with a server somewhere. Everything you do on Tor is encrypted, so no one knows what you're looking at, not even the government. It's actually pretty popular in places where the government snoops on your internet usage. You can use a VPN or virtual private network, and Tor, the government can't see what you're looking at. Basically, the dark web is for users to conduct real, anonymous, untraceable interaction online, which is, basic, which is pretty much impossible. Like right now, I'm accessing Google Docs. Google knows what I'm using to access it. It knows the browser I'm using. It knows probably where I am based on my IP address. And it might even know who owns the company I'm accessing it from and have the address. All of that's information that Google just knows because I'm logged in. It's crazy. But using Tor, a lot of that is blocked. The media says that the dark web may be a haven for illegal activity, and they're pretty much right. Places where people can talk to each other without other people listening in all find their way to Tor, and that includes a bunch of illegal stuff. But let's not get into that. It's a whole other thing. The question really is, is there a limit to the internet? Could the internet become so big and unwieldy that it's not really a useful tool anymore? This is a question of how big the internet can get, right? The internet protocol address, or that four-sectioned number, is IP, or internet protocol, V4. So IP addresses are basically phone numbers. The DNS service looks up what the name for that phone number is, but it does it in reverse. So if I type Google, DNS looks up the IP address for Google in my area and lets me access it. I don't have to remember that Google's IP address is 75.15.whatever, whatever, whatever. Unfortunately, though, there's a limit to the number of IPv4 addresses. You know, it's only four numbers. Those four numbers mean there's a mathematical limit to that. And it's a lot, but we're not that far from hitting it. Asia ran out of IPv4 addresses in 2011. Europe ran out in 2012. North America is running out now. And last November, Salesforce in anticipation of this, picked up over 260,000 addresses, and Microsoft spent $7.5 million in 2011 on 666,000 addresses formerly owned by a networking company, Nortel Networks, that went bankrupt. So companies that run out of their IPv4 addresses, they're not, I mean, they're not screwed, but they've been planning for this, but it's not a good place to be. Because there is something called IPv6. It adds two more groups of numbers to the end of the IP addresses, And about 9% of the internet, says Facebook's Paul Saab, is on IPv6 already. So it was designed in 1998, and it's essentially endless numbers of IP addresses. It's functionally limitless because of the number of mathematical iterations that are added by simply adding two more sections of numbers. 
The problem is it's kind of complicated because right now it'd be like if you have to start dialing the area code on your phone and you didn't used to. It adds a lot more numbers, but it makes things a little more complicated. But you don't have to buy a new phone. In this case, you do. You have to buy new routers, you have to get new equipment, and this is super inside baseball, you guys. But it's really cool and it's important to know because this is how the internet works and these are problems that the physical internet faces every day. It's not just type in Netflix and you go to Netflix and it magically happens. There are thousands of computers involved in this and it's crazy and it happens all the time. So what is the potential for the internet? I mean, the media tend to focus on the internet being used for dirty, gross things. You know what I'm talking about. But we make educational videos for the internet and millions of people share pictures of their friends and family on the internet. And people talk to each other via their phones using the internet. We watch movies. We do all sorts of things. Most of the internet is used for being social and connecting with each other. The internet is not good or bad. The internet is a tool that can be used for good or bad. And it's not just one thing. It's all of the things that humanity can be reflected digitally. That's the internet. And all of that, the good, the bad, the complicated mess that is the internet, it all takes place in a computer somewhere in the world connected through your house. It's crazy. Most of internet security comes down to one word, encryption. The word encryption comes from the Greek word kryptos, meaning hidden or secret. And devices like modems and set-top boxes and smart cards and SIM cards, they all use some form of encryption. Some is stronger than others. Every time someone uses an ATM, buys something online with their smartphone, makes mobile phone calls, presses a key fob to unlock their car, encryption is used to make sure that that network connection is safe. Digital rights management systems, or DRM systems, are on things like iTunes movies and songs, and those things prevent unauthorized use or reproduction of copyrighted material. Even DVDs had some kind of encryption on them. This is an example of protecting our data. Security is important. Even HDMI cables were designed in part to make sure that video gets from one place to another securely along a protected line. Encryption is not a new thing. It's basically a fancy word for codes, right? In 100 BC, Julius Caesar used encryption to send messages to his generals. Known as the Caesar cipher, each character was substituted by another character to form a completed message. And in this case, Caesar replaced all of the letters by the letter three letters in advance. He shifted everything three places. So the letter A was written as the letter D. The letter B was written as the letter E. So the name Trace would come out as Wadf. Yeah, I would not understand that. But that encryption is really simple. So as you can imagine, it's pretty easy to crack some encryptions because once you have the key, no matter how complicated that encryption is, you're in. Once you understand what's being shifted around, you've cracked the code. And as computers become more powerful, encryption keys have to advance as well. If my software can crack a key or an algorithm, the encryption method is basically useless. Anyone can read that data as long as they have this software. The Enigma machine in World War II that we cracked the codes for was useless once the encryption was unlocked. Coincidentally, of course, this was one of the first computers that was created to do this. So, Encryption is just fancy talk, meaning codes. As a side note, though, encryption is also really, really cool. There's a new encryption method in development that uses photons and quantum theory to store the key to the encryption. So it makes it pretty much impossible to crack, or at least impossible right now. 
Quantum key distribution works by using a standard encryption algorithm, the same as anything that you might use on your computer right now. But the sender encrypts the data and then transmits it to the receiver, and it's all done in one place. But the key for that is encoded in a single photon. Then that photon is entangled or placed in a correlated state with a second photon. This is just awesome, by the way. And then they, I mean, I can't even explain it all now because quantum entanglement is super complicated. But suffice it to say, the two photons, once they're entangled, are exact copies. They carry exact copies of the information. So they're spinning at the same rate or whatever. Now, once you send that second photon over, no matter how far away it is, theoretically, it should constantly and forever and be entangled with this photon. So we would know if anything was tampered with, and we would also both have the same key. So any attempt to observe or measure one photon would affect the other correlated photon regardless of where they were on the planet. That is a super secure system. Stuff is super crazy, but it's like the cutting edge of computing and kind of an extraordinarily nerdy and maybe boring for some of you, but exciting for other people is a really awesome way. We can, of course, generate a single reliable photon on demand yet and transport it really far, but they're working on it. So someday. If encryption is crackable, if all encryption is pretty much crackable, how are we going to maintain data security? How do we keep ourselves safe online? Well, a popular way is to hire hackers or outside agencies to test their systems. These hackers are called white hats, and they literally try to hack the network that they're hired to hack. They want to find vulnerabilities and then consult in ways to fix those vulnerabilities. This is a gigantic industry. Some former hackers go into this after the heat comes down on them. The security industry is estimated to generate more than $85 billion globally in 2016. So an example of a white hat hacker might be Barnaby Jack, who died at the age of 35. He brought ATMs on stage at a 2010 security conference and showed that he could hack the machines to spit out money right there in front of everybody. He was then later hired by ATM manufacturers to check for vulnerabilities in their machines as a white hat hacker. Before his death, Jack was planning on showing that he could control pacemakers and defibrillators to send electric shocks and burn out the device remotely, literally killing people. Kind of serious. And all of this is to pressure companies to have better security. So if the internet is based on eventually broken encryption methods, and all encryption can be hacked or broken into, as long as you know the key then why don't all companies and governments just hire white hat hackers? Because there are so many encryption systems. There's a lot of different types of encryption. And sometimes companies do hire hackers and the hackers don't find the way in. So doesn't that mean the internet's pretty unsafe? Yes and no. Whistleblowers have shed light onto some of the NSA and CIA's digital campaigns. So this next bit we got from looking at documents on WikiLeaks, so take that as it will. But it's alleged that the United States has been digitally spying on everybody, like everybody. The NSA allegedly intercepted all French corporate contracts and negotiations valued at more than $200 million in many different industries, like telecommunications, electrical generation, gas, oil, nuclear and renewable energy, and environmental and healthcare technologies. NSA sucking up all that information. The U.S. has allegedly been spying on Japanese cabinet officials, banks, and companies, including Mitsubishi. The U.S. has allegedly tapped the phone of German Chancellor Angela Merkel and her closest advisors and did so for years and spied on the staff of her predecessors. And these are not even threats. These are just our allies 
that we're spying on. And if this is true, imagine what we might be doing to our enemies. I mean, that's, that's huge. The internet has undoubtedly changed warfare. You can thank social media for that in part. ISIS puts things like beheading videos on YouTube. I was actually in one of ISIS's promotional videos because it was about media bias and Test Tube News talks about ISIS a lot. So they used some of our footage. We talk about ISIS all the time, they noticed. So they used it in their social media. And they use their social media as a weapon and also as a recruiting tool. And the US State Department says that they are exceedingly good at it. But aside from all that horrific stuff, Egypt's liberation was also bolstered by Twitter and Facebook. The Arab Spring in general used a lot of social media and a lot of the internet to help spread the awareness and the word. So even when Egypt blocked Twitter, a group of engineers from Google, Twitter, and Say Now created a voice-to-tweet service. An Egyptian could call a specific number, record their voice, and then the system would tweet that for them, keeping the revolution alive online, even though they had blocked the websites. Thanks to the internet, we are no longer gatekept bystanders to the news, reading reports days later after a number of journalists and editors have looked at it. Instead, we can now witness the action on the ground in real time and even influence and comment on what's happening. Whether that's good or bad is a whole other conversation, but now, because of the web, it is a two-way conversation, with activists from all over the world able to participate, spread the word, and help each other's movements grow. That's all because of the internet. A side effect to this is a lesser need for impartial embedded journalists, which, again, is another conversation that could be good or bad. But now folks can be empowered to share their perspective and be part of movements around the planet. And this is rather than having their words relayed back to other countries through the gatekeeping mass media. In the end, cyber war is already upon us. But it is not the only way the internet is used in international conflicts. Because of the internet, Americans may now be more conscious of the world outside of our borders. And social media plays a big role in that. That can be scary, you know? It can raise people's levels of stress and it makes people feel more threatened on a day-to-day basis. But if you think about it, it shouldn't. It should make us feel more connected and more involved in those things. That being said, though, the survivalist movement is in full swing. Some people think the world is going to end, like, soon, because they aren't used to seeing so many stressful things around them and in the world at large. And unfortunately, unlike 50, 60 years ago, no big political entity can call a major newspaper editor and ask them to cool it and not publish a story, because the fourth estate just doesn't control the national conversation the way that they used to. We are now more educated because of the internet than ever on who our enemies are, but also who our friends are. And even North Korea's voice is being heard these days, despite the fact that they are pretty much irrelevant. There's more public outcry and awareness of national conversations because of the internet, like Black Lives Matter, that movement, and conversations over police brutality and shootings around the country. These things happen and they are able to be talked about way more so because the media may have moved on, but the people haven't and the people have the internet. It's almost like everyone nowadays is forced to have an opinion on so many things because social media brings them right to our doorstep. Moore's Law is an observation made by Intel co-founder Gordon Moore. He made the observation in 1965, and he noticed the number of transistors per square inch on silicon chips had doubled every year since their invention. Transistors are little electrical switches that are inside of computers. Inside of the CPU is a bunch of transistors all jammed onto that chip, and they're used to represent zeros and ones in machine code and binary. 
Moore's law predicts that the number of transistors is going to continue to double for the foreseeable future. Not forever, but I'll come back to that. In an interview with the New York Times, 86-year-old Gordon Moore said for the first 20 years, he could not utter the term Moore's law. It was embarrassing. But this has proven to be a thing. This is something that people talk about when they talk about technology. When they say things like technology doubles every couple of years, that's Moore's law. Intel's Brian Krasanich explained Moore's law this way. If a 1971 VW Beetle had advanced at the pace of Moore's law over the past 34 years, today you would be able to go 300,000 miles an hour, you would get 2 million miles per gallon, and all of that would cost 4 cents. (laughs) So is Moore's law accurate? I mean... Moore didn't create it as a law. They just call it that. Moore never thought that his prediction would last 50 years. In fact, the original prediction looked at 10 years, which he thought was a stretch on its own. Moore's law is suggesting that computers and technology will follow an exponential growth pattern, which is unlikely to continue indefinitely. And recently, the pace of transistors being packed into computer chips has slowed. The number of transistors per square inch has doubled approximately every 18 months, which is now the current definition of Moore's Law instead of much more often than that. It's not clear why Moore's Law applies to real life. In fact, it would seem that you would have an invention and then you would have something really cool happen so you'd get a spike, right? But that's not how it's been. It's been a pretty smooth curve upward. And that's strange, but nobody really knows why. Peter Denning, a computer scientist at the Naval Postgraduate School in California, says about this, that science has mysteries, and in some ways, Moore's Law is one of those mysteries, which is pretty cool. Most experts who look at Moore's Law and they look at the current pace of technology expect that this law is going to hold for another 20 years or so. Some studies show physical limitations, the number of transistors that can be crammed onto a computer chip, that limitation might be reached by 2017. But really, though, Does this even matter? With the incredibly fast-growing pace of computing power, this has led to laptops that are pocket-sized and gadgets that are so tiny they can fit on wrists and even smaller than that, and there's enormous processing power at pretty affordable price points, to be honest. I mean, just when we keep hitting a wall, another way is found to compress transistors into smaller spaces. Or a whole new wave of computing comes upon us, like quantum computing, which people are working on right now, which would reduce the size of computers to the size of atoms. But how does Moore's law affect the internet, right? This is a whole series about the internet. Does the internet get upgraded as Moore's law moves? Of course it does. We're accessing the internet with images in a way that they couldn't have even imagined in the 60s and 70s. We're using pictures and video. We're getting live images from places using the internet. And that's because Moore's law has allowed it to be upgraded. But when it comes to the internet and Moore's law and technology getting better and things like that, a lot of people start talking about net neutrality. It's been a hot topic for a few years. Maybe you've heard of it. But the basis for that whole debate can be traced back to the Telecommunications Act of 1996. That act gave the FCC the authority to classify internet service providers, or ISPs, as a public utility, similar to phone companies. They didn't do that, but they could have. If they had done that, It would give the FCC broad powers to control some of the more predatory business models that ISPs sometimes use to decrease competition. 
The battle that they had more recently with net neutrality was basically over whether or not it should be okay for ISPs to be able to charge a company for better or faster bandwidth to their sites. So because so many people are using Netflix during prime time of the internet usage, it was using so much of the internet's bandwidth that Netflix was being charged by Comcast for that. And that seemed not okay for a lot of people. They paid Comcast, they paid Netflix, they should access whatever they want. That's net neutrality. By them charging, that was eliminating smaller companies from competing with Netflix because Netflix could could afford to pay this price to Comcast. In June of 2014, John Oliver's fantastic show last week tonight on HBO raised awareness which caused the FCC comment section on their website to crash as people expressed their interest in regulating ISPs like you regulate a public utility. And in February of 2015, the FCC reclassified broadband companies as telecommunication services, putting an end to these throttling practices and these two different speeds of internet service that you'd have to pay to access the fast one. These predatory practices were done. Theoretically, (laughs) because of course the government moves pretty slow and change is still in the works. So we're going to see what this will cause in the future. It's pretty clear that the world has changed since the internet has risen. Paying bills, meeting new people, basically everything that we used to do out here in meat space, we can now do online. And before we had to wear pants and now we don't have to wear pants. So that's kind of awesome. But what about hackers? You can't talk about the internet and not talk about hackers. How have hackers influenced the internet? Have they made it better or worse? Hackers and hacking culture is pretty much woven into the fabric of the internet. The first people to use the internet were making it up as they went. I mean, they were essentially hackers, right? They were creating all sorts of new ways of using these computers that were all networked together. Anyone who ever thought of exploiting someone or taking advantage of anything on the internet, trying to figure out how this computer works and using it in a different way than it might have been designed, they could be considered a hacker. However, today when you think of hackers, you think of trying to break into networks or you think of trying to access things that maybe you aren't supposed to or don't know how to or something like that. And that involves one of these three types of things. The most basic level of hacking is social engineering. Basically, you're exploiting people to gain access to a system. This is like 99% of day-to-day hacking. Almost all of you have done this. This is getting someone's password off a sticky note on their desk is this kind of hacking. Common things like faking credentials or sweet-talking your way to access a system, essentially trying common passwords. This is like if your mom's computer is on and you need to access it and she's not home, you guess her password or you look at her notebook filled with her passwords. That's this type of hacking. There's a quote from Hackers that I really like about this, which I think is really hilarious. If you haven't seen Hackers, the movie, go watch it. It's great. Someone didn't bother reading my carefully prepared memo on commonly used passwords, says the plague. Now then, as I so meticulously pointed out, the four most used passwords are love, sex, secret, and God. So would your holiness care to change her password? I think it's funny. Hackers is great. Now we can't, of course, use love, sex, secret, and God because most of those don't satisfy password requirements, which have changed and mostly eliminated a lot of the social engineering that old hackers were able to do. Today, you have to use all sorts of weird characters and special characters, and that's a way to counteract this type of hacking. 
So that's when you move to the next type of hacking, which is cracking. It's usually called brute force attempts. But you might picture a guy trying to like force a door down. That's not really what it is. It's more like typing random numbers into a keypad until you get the right one. Or kind of picking a lock, I guess. The hacker guesses passwords and credentials needed to access a system, usually using special software. This is how people get AOL, Twitter, Gmail accounts, and they get hacked and they get them stolen. These software programs can try a million passwords and different combinations of characters using information that they can get from you publicly and also just trying them at random until they get the right one and then boom, they're in. Which is why you shouldn't make your password something that they would consider normal or weak password, something like your birthday or your first name or you know where you're from combined with your birth year and all of those things. Those things are right at the top of that software. So they're the first things they're going to try. They have to let their computer work at it for a while. So when you think brute force, don't think of him sitting there typing furiously trying to try all these passwords. This is a software program that someone can run and eventually they will get in. They're not muscling their way in, but the software sort of is. But if that doesn't work, then hackers use the third method, which is exploiting. This is discovering or creating a vulnerability in a whole system and then using that to gain access to information. So instead of trying to log into Gmail or Facebook through your username and password, they try and find a vulnerability in Facebook's wall as a whole and then get to your information that way. Usually this involves malware. could also involve credit card skimming. This is a simple way to do it where they put a little device inside of an ATM to scan the credit cards as they get there. That's an exploitation. But more commonly, you're going to see something like malware when you go to a website and that installs a little piece of software that allows the hacker to bypass your security and access your computer whenever they want. DDoSing is a type of exploitation. I'm not going to explain entirely what that is, but it's called a denial-of-service attack. Anonymous uses this a lot. This is where Anonymous might take thousands of computers infected with malware and make them point their web browsers at the same website to attack that system from thousands of IP addresses or millions all at the same time and take the website down. It's like overwhelming the website with a mass of zombies. Literally, that's what you can picture because that's kind of how it works. Obviously, this type of hacking gets technical really fast. They can use a variety of different attacks that may exist even in the code that the website's written in, like in PHP or SQL and other protocols to access these websites. And that's also how jailbreaking happens. They're looking at different ports and trying to find a way into this software. It's very complicated stuff. But if you're combining all of this to make a living wage or major social and economic change, and you call yourself a hacker you're probably a white hat hacker. But otherwise, you're probably a black hat hacker and you're never going to call yourself a hacker. Most black hat hackers are just like, oh, you know, I was playing with this thing and ended up in the FBI database. No big deal. Hacker history started way back with phones. Hack first came to mean fussing with machines in general. And at MIT in April of 1955, for a meeting of the Tech Model Railroad Club, It was stated that Mr. Eccles requests that anyone working or hacking on the electrical systems turn off the power to avoid a fuse blowing. Hacking didn't just have to do with computers, and it's been used that way ever since. In the 1950s, a blind seven-year-old, Joe Ingressa Jr., heard a high-pitched tone in the background of a phone call and started whistling along with it. 
This was back when phones were analog, and those number combinations were a way for the phone company's computer to know where you were going. He learned to recognize all of these different tones, pulses, clicks, and beeps that those phone computers used to talk to themselves. Because back then, those sounds told the phone company what you were trying to do. So if he could copy those and manipulate the entire telephone system, he could make free calls or gain access into other things. They called it phone freaking with a PH, and many early computer hackers began as phone freakers, although they didn't all learn to whistle. Some of them just made recordings and then would play them back. Hacking and exploiting has been around as long as someone has thought to gain access to systems that they weren't supposed to access. In 1903, a stage magician, Neville Maskellen, found a security hole in Marconi's wireless telegraph. And during a public demonstration of Marconi's wireless telegraph, the magician sneakily hijacked the signal and sent insulting Morse code messages down the wire instead of the intended messages for the live audience. And this is where... Uh, this is where all craziness happens. I mean, that kind of stuff is what hacking is all about. A lot of it isn't malicious, but about jokes and about making themselves laugh and doing it for the lulls. While there are many famous hackers throughout history, even Steve Wozniak hacked into things, there are also places like Anonymous, which is an international gathering of people using their hacking prowess to shed light on global injustice. They directly caused the resignation of a chief executive of a U.S. security firm that was helping the government track down cyber activists. They even got into his email, and then they made it public, which showed the firm was willing to use dirty tactics to try and find these people who were just activists online. There's a lot of amazing stuff you can do with the Internet. The Internet is literally changing how our brains work, which is incredible to think about, which is also kind of funny to think about. Just by having a computer in your house... You are making yourself a different human than we would have been 50 years ago. It's mind-blowing. 